thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Welcome to Connect Church. Hey, let's thank our team for leading us out this morning. I, I was telling somebody earlier that, uh, man, after sometimes they get done singing, I'm like, what am I going to do, right? Like, what, what, what job left is there? They proclaim the gospel in such a good way. We are so glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, and we are honored to have you here today. And thank you for being a part of Connect Church, where our heartbeat every time we gather together is to make much of Jesus. And thanks for coming along for the ride uh, today. And as we get started today, our nation, in fact the world, commemorates today the 21st anniversary of, of 9-11. It was a dark morning where evil was thrust upon the American people. And although a dark morning, the darkness soon gave, light, gave way to the light of American heroism and resolve. On a morning where many heroes died, many more heroes were born. But it's on this day this anniversary that we do as Scripture commands us to do, and that is not only do we rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but it's incumbent upon us to weep with those who weep. And so today we remember the many thousands who would never make it home that morning. The many more thousands that would go off and as our brave men and women in the armed forces and fight to preserve our freedom would never come home. Or if they did, so many were injured and wounded and devastated by war. And so today, as we, as we begin, can we pray and just pray for the many families today? Today's anniversary leaves them simply heartbroken. Heartbroken and longing for the days before that very fateful day in history. So let's pray together. So Father, we come to you in, in Jesus' name. And Lord, we, we, we carry out your command in Scripture. Today we weep with those who weep. Moms and dads who kids never came home. Children who never know their mom or dad. First responders who ran in when everybody was running out. To soldiers who answered the call to serve. Father, we pray your peace amidst the storm of the memories of this day. We pray your healing over hearts that are still hurting. And Father, we pray your protection for our nation, for our people. God bless our soldiers who still to this day are serving, the brave men and women who fight and who serve for our freedom. May we never forget, and may we never forget to pray for those who this day cost so great and so much. Father, we love you. We praise you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
And amen. Today begins a new series in the life of our church, a series into the Gospel of John. Now, I'm going to tell you, for months now, I have been anticipating this sermon series. The other day, I I was walking around the neighborhood, and and I've started doing that a lot more because I want to be less fat. Anyway, so I'm walking around the neighborhood, and, and I walk by a neighbor's yard, and listen, a hawk has come down out of the air and caught a cute little woodland creature. Um, I won't tell you what it is because it may hurt some of you guys, but Easter's going to be a whole lot different this year. Anyway, and so he caught this woodland creature and began to eat the thing. One of the coolest things I've ever seen. And so I thought, man, my son is going to love to see this. So I got my phone. I'm standing on the road, and I'm watching this hawk, and it was a, it was a pretty big bird, and it was eating on this little woodland creature. And, and I got a little closer, and, and I got my phone out, and I started videoing it. Man, Bennett's going to love this. And so I get within 10 feet of that hawk. You know what happens? We catch eyes. And I'm filming. You can actually hear my breathing kind of pick up a little bit because then there was a whole new anticipation in my life. And I thought, man, I don't know how good hawks can kill, but what if he comes out? Like the last thing my kids are going to hear me do is scream and run like a girl out of that situation. Man, we anticipate a lot of things in life. I've really looked forward for the next foreseeable future of studying this gospel that we call the gospel of John. I framed it this way, that the gospel of John is a gospel like no other. And we're going to see exactly why that is the case. I've heard it said about the gospel of John that the gospel of John is so simple that a child can wade into it and an elephant can swim in it. That's how beautiful this gospel is. John writes this gospel with a vocabulary bank of some six to 700 words. By the way, the average vocabulary bank for a seven or eight-year-old today. Simple enough for a child to understand, yet profound enough that not even theologians or scholars can exhaust its teaching. You see, it's the gospel of John that give us some of our most beloved encounters in all of Scripture. How about Jesus meeting up with Nicodemus at night? Producing one of the most recognizable verses in all the world, in all the Bible, John 3, 16. How about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well and the life change that was there? I think of this very same John who stood on the Mount of Transfiguration there with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. It's the very same John who stood there at the tomb side of Lazarus before Jesus emptied it. The very same John who while Jesus was dying on the cross entrusted the care of his mama too with his last breath. Say, Anthony, what does the Gospel of John, what does it have to offer to me today? Well, for the person here who doesn't believe in God, in his son Jesus, the Gospel of John is an invitation to see if Jesus is worth believing. Hey, by the way, we're convinced he is. And I'm so glad you're here. To the lost, it is our prayer that you would see the love of God, that your creator that he has for you in Jesus Christ. 
and by faith you'll come to him. I pray for the skeptic that in the end that you will trust in Jesus as your Savior. And to those with great questions, deep questions, I pray that you will find answers in Jesus. To the believer, to the Christ follower, I pray simply this, that your love and faith in Jesus will grow. So for today and for this foreseeable future, we dive into the gospel of John. I was reading over uh, social media last week, and I saw a buddy of mine, Aaron Case, pastor of Eden's Chapel in Seymour, as he announced what sermon number he was on in the Gospel of John. And it was simply this. He was in his 92nd sermon in the Gospel of John. I read that, and you know, I thought, challenge accepted. 92, I'm going 93. I don't know that we'll get 93 in. But I'll, be, I'll promise you this that 93 sermons don't do this gospel justice. Cannot exhaust what we find therein. And so today, uniquely, it's going to feel as if we are drinking from a a fire hydrant. So here's my hope. I hope you're thirsty. Let's get ready. Today we look to the gospel of John, a gospel like none other. And we must begin this study by asking a couple of very important questions. And that is this. First, who is it that authors this gospel? Maybe a funny question, but an important one because the gospel that bears John's name didn't originally bear his name. However, the author made himself known in the gospel itself. So let's begin this conversation. Watch this in John chapter 21, verse 20. Peter, who also is a disciple, an apostle, a follower of Jesus, Turned, the Bible says, and he saw, now look at this phrasing, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're going to get to this in a minute. But the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is a self-description by the author of himself. He saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against Jesus, meaning him, during the supper. Isn't this an odd self-designation? The disciple whom Jesus loves? I mean, doesn't that seem like maybe he's bragging a little bit? Like, I'm hoping the other guys read this. Like, Jesus, I'm his favorite. Teacher's pet? Seems a little braggadocious. Maybe it seems a little too, a little too much, a little bit too much of overstating the case on the, half, on the behalf of John. But let me ask you something, church. Isn't that exactly how Jesus makes you feel? Isn't that just how Jesus makes you? You me feel? And his love for us? You know, listen, you know you. You know your sin. You know all your struggles. He certainly knows the good and the bad and the ugly about all of us. And yet he loves us anyway. In fact, the Word of God would testify to this in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners in our ugliest, in our darkest of moments, in our greatest rebellion, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You get to thinking all that Jesus has forgiven you of, all that he knows about you, Yet he loves you. 
He desires you. He cares for you. And he's after your heart. You know, you get to thinking about that. And then you start thinking, you know what? You might just be the one who Jesus, who he loves. You ever been around someone who makes you feel like you're the most important person in the room? You may not have seen them for a while, but when you get near them, they make you feel like, man, you're their best friend. My youth pastor, Scott Carter, was like that. Still is like that. Man, everybody felt loved and cared for by Scott Carter. But you know what? He did it in such a good way. I always felt like I was his favorite, right? That he loved me the most, and I was okay with that. My father-in-law has that same type of gift. Every time I'm around him, man, I'm convinced that I'm his favorite son-in-law, that he loves me the most. I'm his only son-in-law, but really I still feel that maybe he does. I think of Jesus, all that he's forgiven me of, how much he's had to put up with Anthony, what he did for me on the cross, how he, how he saved me, how he's working in me, and, and how, he, how he loves me. Then I begin to think that maybe every time I sign my name, I ought to include a phrase. Anthony, the one Jesus loves. You know, I got to thinking for every Christ follower in here. And you know, maybe we ought to start signing our names just a little bit different. Should follow it up with a phrase. Every time we sign a check, every time we sign off on an email or a letter, and just put in your name the one who Jesus loves. And then you ask, why does he, why does he say this about himself in Scripture? Why, time and time again, do we find it there? And then you begin to think that maybe, just maybe, John just can't get over how much Jesus loves him. He says it, and he says it of himself in John 13, and John 19, and John chapter 20, and John chapter 21. And I have a guess here, but the reason why he calls himself that is because he never got over how much Jesus loves him. in church, can I challenge you in one thing this morning? Never get over how much Jesus loves you. Later on in John chapter 21, the author reveals himself. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. John outs himself as the author. Hey, better yet, the co-author of this unsigned gospel. The reason I say co-author is because we know that the author of this gospel is the Holy Spirit of God as is all scripture. Listen to what Paul would write Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. That all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, and all righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hey, all scripture is God-breathed. You know what that means? That the gospel of John is too. The Holy Spirit authored inspired, impressed upon the heart of John, the co-author, to write this account. But hear me, John comes to the table with some pretty incredible experience and some pretty great credentials. 
You see, John was permitted by the Holy Spirit to use his experience, his personality, his literary talents to write the gospel that bears his name. Yes, John, the son of Zebedee, the professional fisherman turned faithful follower of Jesus, who was both in close proximity to Jesus and served as an eyewitness to his ministry. John was assigned by the Holy Spirit of God to compose a gospel that exposed the deepest teachings we have on Jesus himself. So, for me, John, without question, without hesitation, and without contestation, John is the author of this gospel. John, the disciple, the apostle of Jesus, is the author of the gospel that bears his name. And over the next many weeks together, we are going to see just how beautiful this gospel, a gospel like no other, is. But hey, listen, this wasn't John's only work. His writing wasn't limited to merely a gospel, but first, second, and third John are letters that he authored, and also the book of Revelation. So who's the author? The author's John. The second question is, what is a gospel? You will hear in this series, 93 sermons of which I bet, but here, you'll hear in this series, we're going to talk through the gospel of John. Well, what is a gospel? Let, let me show you the word in the Greek language. It's euangelion. Isn't that just a weird word? That's what it looks like in the Greek, and that's how we say it, um, it pronounced out phonetically. But this is where we get the word gospel from. I hear euangelion. And you know what? It's a weird word. It hits me weird. It reminds me of what the name of a deep-sea creature should look like with dangly things, something like this. That looks like the word. Oh, but it's something far greater than what is called a glass octopus in the deep. It simply means the good news. It also describes four first-century Greco-Roman-style biographies that captured the love and the life and the ministry of Jesus. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John serve as the good news account, a historical rendering of Jesus and his mission to save the world. Now, you know what a biography is. A biography is simply an account of someone's life written by someone else. In my hands, I have two biographies, one of Ronald Reagan, one of my favorite presidents. And this biography is over 750 pages. Barack Obama's biography, written by an author, over 650 pages long. This is where you stop for a minute and thank God that John's only 21 chapters long. So why are the Gospels so much shorter than even our modern-day biographies? In this style right here, a first-century writing, the author penned in his Gospels the most important and impactful parts of a person's life. Now, if you're looking for the Gospels to share with you how old Jesus wanted us when he took his first steps, what it was like potty training Jesus or what he ate on the docks of the shoreline of Galilee, I mean, this Gospel's not for you. John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they would write down in their Gospels this first century biography, the most important impactful and incredible parts of Jesus' life and ministry. Just how God intended them to do 
through his spirit. I love having four gospels, four different perspectives, four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're known as the synoptic gospels. They give us a synopsis, or if you will, a summary of many of the same events surrounding Jesus' life just from different perspectives. Oh, but John's gospel is the most unique of all four. Why? Because 92% of John is unique to John. Meaning this, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke, maybe they didn't fill in all the gaps, John comes and does that. But let me tell you the main difference. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us what Jesus did. John tells us who Jesus is. And it's a gospel like no other. So in that, we also find the goal, the aim, the purpose of John's gospel. Now, we don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to hypothesize as to what it might be. John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wrote in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these things are written, watch, so that you may what? Believe. Hey, it's not just in the songs that we sang today. It's the very theme and the goal of John that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may, watch this, have life. Life, again, is not just in the songs we sing today, but life is the very goal and the theme of the Gospel of John. There it is, spoken by himself. Let me tell you, here at Connect Church, we're convinced of this, that following Jesus is not only the best way to live this life, but it's the only way to die. And you know what? John is convinced of that truth as well. In fact, the word believe, let's camp out here for a moment, is used 98 times in 21 chapters of the Gospel of John. In fact, nearly one-third of all uses of this word believe in the Bible was written by John, by John. Now, what does this word mean? Now, believing is not just some intellectual ascent. It's not just intellectual knowledge or a head knowledge of something. It's more than that. You know, he hear me. I know what's in hot dogs. I know how hot dogs are made. I still eat hot dogs. Do you understand what I'm saying? Knowing something doesn't necessarily change us. So what does believing look like in Scripture? You see, believing is more than just intellectual head knowledge. It is a combination of believing with your head and with your heart in Jesus. And it's such a belief as will change your life. Believing means putting one's full faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God and as the Savior of the world and entrusting your life to Him. That's what believing looks like. I read this past week in an article in a study that a third of all pastors in America believe that a person can get to heaven by just simply being a good person. A third of all pastors. You know, when I read that article, that study this past week, there were three words that came to my mind. Number one, unbelievable. Number two, ungodly. And number three, unbiblical. 
I'm reminded later on of what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, which we'll camp out here in the weeks to come. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except through me. And let me tell you how simple-minded I am, church. You ready? If Jesus said it, if the Bible teaches it, I believe it. And you know what? So does John. John is unapologetic in his gospel that there is one way, there is one salvation, one Savior, and it's Jesus. Think of this. Tim Keller, a wonderful pastor, prolific writer, and a man struggling through a terrible pancreatic cancer. But one of my favorites said this once. It is not the strength of your faith, but watch this, the object of your faith that actually saves you. You see, the object of John's faith is Jesus. And he knows this, that the only hope and the only salvation for any of mankind is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. You go, man, why does John so adamantly believe this? Because Jesus is the one who saved him. John believed in Jesus. And it changed his very life. And so he writes to see the very same accomplished in us. Isn't it fitting that John doesn't stop with believing alone? But not only is there believing, but there is a living in and out of what we believe. This statement is still true to this day. What you believe, what I believe, determines how we live. What we truly and genuinely believe determine how we live. You see, life. It's another common theme in John. The word in the Greek is zoe, and that's what's translated as life to us. John writes about it 36 times in his gospel. But I want you to hear me. It speaks more than just biological life, meaning brain waves and a heartbeat and breathing. It speaks to theological life, and that is the fullness of life in Jesus. In fact, John would record to us these words of Jesus in John 10.10. Jesus said, I came that they may have life, and have it what? Abundantly. In your translation, it may say, to the full. And what we begin to see from John is that life in Jesus is life that is overflowing. It is overwhelming. It is overarching. It is overrunning. It is overcoming. And it's overjoyed. Tim Keller, to finish out his quote, would later say, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Talk about life that only Jesus can live. You see, John challenges us to believe and to have life in Jesus' name. So the question I ask is, what's in a name? What difference does a name make? For many of us today, we choose names for our children to help designate them, to distinguish them, to differentiate from them from others. We try to find names that are, that are cute and, and unique 
And here's the big thing, even though it sounds awful, I promise you did this too, names that nobody else has ruined for you. You know what I'm talking about? I've had four kids here recently. When I say I've had four kids, looks like I've had them. My wife had four kids here recently, and man, finding names that people ain't ruined, man, that's a hard task. Right? That's what we, we differentiate our kids from others. We distinguish them by using names. But in the ancient world, in this first century where John would write in the Old Testament, you see a person's name. It encompassed their whole character, their title, their, rep, their, their person, their reputation. Really what is implied by their name is the whole person. So when John writes in John 1.12 to believe in his name, it means to believe that all that Jesus is and to believe in all that he accomplished to save us. The name of Jesus meant everything to John. You know what? There's some names that mean a lot to me. I think of the name of my wife. And every time I just get to thinking about her name, My heart fills with love and, uh, and affection. Her name means a lot to me. I think of the names of my kids. Avery and Chloe and Sadie and Bennett. And just to think of their name, their whole person, just fills my heart with happiness and uh, and a love that I never knew before them. I love a lot of names. There's some names I don't like a whole lot. Oh, but I do love some names. But there is a name, one name, that is the most precious to me of all. One name that means more to me than all the riches this world has to offer. It's a name like no other, and it's the name of Jesus. What's in his name? Church, hear me. Everything. His name encompasses all Scripture has spoken about him. It incorporates all that he has done. It embraces all that he has promised, and it embodies the truth of who he is. What's in a name? Everything. That's why. Luke would write in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. Watch what he says here. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And you know what? John was bought into that too. What a name. The name of Jesus. So, Anthony, what's, what's our challenge from the text today? Well, it's twofold, and to be honest with you, I have nothing new for you. Let me give you two challenges from what is an introduction to the Gospel of John and really one passage of Scripture we're taking a look at today. Here's your challenge. Number one, believe in Jesus. By the way, I stole that from John. Believe in in Jesus, not just with a head knowledge, but a combination of believing with your heart and your mind and allowing Jesus to change your life. So not only do you believe in Jesus, but here we go. Have life in his name. Find life in the name of Jesus. You know, in this old world, 
There's a lot of things that promise us life. Hey, you ready? Just one more drink and you'll really live. One more pill. One more hit. All and then you'll know what life is really all about. One more relationship. One more surgery. One more purchase. One more accolade. One more marriage. One more relationship. One more dollar. Oh, that's when you know what real living's all about. And yet John would write something far different. That to believe in Jesus is to have life. Life abundantly. Life everlasting as we are going to see in this gospel. In Jesus' name. You see, the truth is, so many in our churches today are either dead or dying spiritually, bound to a body of death because of sin and selfishness. My challenge to you is to believe in Jesus and have life in His name. You see, John wrote, in order that we might believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and then by, by believing, you and I would have life in His name. This past week, the world grieved the loss of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth, a graceful, powerful fixture on the world stage for over 70 years, and among her many praiseworthy attributes, Queen Elizabeth had a strong faith in Jesus. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, would speak highly and fondly of Queen Elizabeth, and what he admired the most of her was her strong faith in Jesus Christ. From all the evidence, I truly believe that the queen believed in Jesus and had life in his name. And I believe if her majesty were to stand before us today, she'd tell you the same. I'm reminded of a story I once heard of one of the chaplains of her majesty, Queen Elizabeth. Well, he'd been preaching on the second coming of Jesus. The queen was in attendance and at the end of his sermon, he had a conversation with her. To which the, the queen said to him this, Oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. A queen who had the world before her. Look at the jewels that adorned her neck and the crown that adorned her head. And yet her statement to the chaplain was, Oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. And the chaplain said to her, Why does your majesty, the queen, feel this very earnest desire? And she replied with a quivering lip, yet her face lit up with deep emotion. She said this, For I should love to lay my crown at his feet. I should love to lay my crown 
at His feet. You see, this is what believing in Jesus, this is what life in His name, that's what it looks like. In her last public address before she died, Queen Elizabeth said this, but life, of course, consists of final partings as well as first meetings. Final partings as well as first meetings. This past week, Queen Elizabeth had her final parting. But oh, what a first meeting she had with Jesus in heaven. Where she met him, embraced him, bowed before him, and laid her crown at his feet. Can I ask you this? What comes of you after your final parting from this life? What does that first meeting look like? Will you stand before the King of all kings? Hear from Him, well done, thy, thy good and faithful servant, as I believe the Queen did. Or at the final parting from this life, will your first meeting be in an eternity? Separated from God. John writes these things in John 20, 31. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Let's pray together, can we? Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.